Well, the Word of God comes to us from Exodus chapter 40. It's written out there for you in your worship folder. This is a marvelous culmination of the Exodus journey. They started off as slaves, and now they are worshiping God through this mobile worship center, a, tech, a tent structure. And uh, these are the final words of Moses in this book called the Exodus. May God bless the reading of his word. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, On the first day of the first month you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting, and you shall put in it the ark of the testimony, and you shall screen the ark with the veil. And you shall bring in the table and arrange it, and you shall bring the lampstand and set up its lamps. And you shall put the golden altar for incense before the ark of the testimony and set up the screen for the door of the tabernacle. And you shall set the altar of burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle of the meat of the tent of meeting and place the basin between the tent of the meeting and the altar and put water in it. And you shall set up the court all around and hang up the screen for the gate of the court. Then you shall take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that is in it and consecrate it and all its furniture so that it may become holy. You shall also anoint the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils and consecrate the altar and so the altar may become most holy. You shall also anoint the basin and its stand and consecrate it. Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and shall wash them with water and put on Aaron the holy garments. And you shall anoint him and consecrate him that he may serve me as priest. You shall bring his sons also and put coats on them and anoint them as you anointed their father that they may serve me as priests. And the And their anointing shall admit them to a perpetual priesthood throughout their generations. This Moses did according to all that the Lord had commanded him, so he did in the first month of the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. Moses erected the tabernacle, he laid its bases and set up its frames and put in its poles and raised up its pillars. And he spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent over it as the Lord had commanded Moses. He took the testimony and put it into the ark and put the poles on the ark and set the mercy seat above on the ark. And he brought the ark into the tabernacle and set up the veil of the screen and screened the ark of the testimony as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the table in the tent of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle outside the veil and arranged the bread on it before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the lampstand in the tent of meeting opposite the table of the south side of the tabernacle and set up the lamps before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the golden altar in the tent of meeting before the veil and burned, burnt fragrant incense on it as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put in place the screen for the door of the tabernacle and he set the altar of burnt offering at the entrance of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and offered on it the burnt offering and the grain offering 
as the Lord had commanded Moses. He set the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it for washing, with which Moses and Aaron and his sons washed their hands and their feet. When they went into the tent of meeting and when they approached the altar, they washed as the Lord had commanded Moses. And he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from above, from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray for us. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you most of all that you have come from heaven to earth to dwell as a king among your people. Lord, um, as you have fed me this year, I pray that you would continue to feed me and that you would feed all of us this morning. Lord, that you would give us, uh, through your word and through your Holy Spirit, a fire in our guts to see and know and participate in your coming as a king to reign on earth. Lord, we have, we have great need Feed us this morning through your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, <clears throat> now, I am not a great gift receiver. Uh, my wife figured this out a while ago. Maybe some of you have also experienced this. Uh, see, I kind of know what I want, or at least, and this is key, at least I think that I know what I want. And so if you give me a gift that isn't something that I was already wanting, the likelihood is high that I'll open it and do something like this. Great. I'm sure I can find just the place for this. Uh, And the sad thing is that most of the best gifts that I've been given in my life that I'm now most excited about, I missed when they were given to me because I wasn't ready and I didn't know what was being given to me. Uh, The summer before I headed off to seminary, I had purchased a brand new computer and I had one of these kind of over-the-shoulder computer bags that I loved and unfortunately had it stolen out of my car while I was in a park. And a good friend of mine was not able to replace the computer, but bought me a new bag, a new blue Jansport bag. And uh, I opened it up and responded just the way I described because I had not yet bought a new bag for myself because I hadn't emotionally separated from my old bag and I just wanted the same bag. And I thought maybe if I had had a chance to look for the bag myself, maybe I could have found the same bag. So I was like, well, thanks, thanks for the bag. Uh, and six years later, that's still the bag I'm using today. And, and I love it. 
Uh, but the point is, with me so often, I think for us sometimes, when we receive something that we don't understand or that we weren't expecting, it's hard to fully embrace or attach to what it is that we've been given. Uh, and I have a hunch that especially in the evangelical world, we do not always really understand the incarnation. And even more than that, the whole theme in the Bible of God coming from heaven to earth and dwelling as a king in this place on the earth with his people. Uh, The Lord has been uh, teaching me a lot about this this last year. And so on this last Sunday of the year, uh, I want to try and do three things at the same time. Uh, one of them is uh, to finish up our sermon series on Exodus. I bet you guys didn't know that we weren't done yet, huh? Uh, we did almost the whole book, and then we took a break for Advent, and then we saved the last chapter uh, for this Sunday. Uh, so I want to talk about Exodus 40, and I want to share with you what the Lord has been uh, doing in my heart and teaching me this year about him coming as a king. Uh, And I want, at the same time, to reflect on everything that Todd has been teaching us the past four weeks about the Incarnation and Christ descending from heaven to earth. Uh, And I think that I can do all three of those things at the same time, Uh, because in my mind, it all boils down to one thought, and that is God himself descending from heaven to earth to rule as a king on the earth And be with his people, that the theme of the Bible is, I will be your God, and you will be my people. Uh, I want to start by seeing this theme in the book of Exodus, in this final story. So if you remember uh, our story, our theme, our sermon series on Exodus, or if you've read the book, um, you get a real exciting first ten chapters. Because the Israelites are in slavery in Egypt, and God says, that he hears and he understands and he's going to do something about it. And so he calls and appoints Moses to be his representative and speak on his behalf. That's significant, by the way. That's going to come back. Um, And that he's going to rescue his people through Moses. Uh, And then he does great plagues and he brings them out of Egypt with a big show of power and wonder and glory out to himself. And up to that point, we are all tempted to think that the story is a story about these people in slavery and God bringing them out of slavery with a mighty hand and giving them a great, awesome new land with milk and honey where they can have a great life. And then, right when we're excited to get to the next action segment about entering the promised land, instead we get the Ten Commandments. And then we get about seven chapters of details of temple furnishings and lampstands and tables for bread and fabrics and doorposts. And then there's the sad incident with the golden calf. And then we get, as if it wasn't enough already, another seven chapters repeating all the same details over again about the lampstand and the bread of presence and the altar and the fabrics. And then the book ends not with entering the promised land and something exciting. It ends with all the furniture getting put together and then the cloud entering the temple. And then the book just stops there. And my suggestion is, what if instead the story is not about 
the Israelites being freed from slavery and being given a great land, although that's part of the story, what if the story was really a story about God as the great king descending from heaven to earth to rule and dwell in the midst of his people and spreading his glory out from there through his people. And so in order to do that, he had to rescue the people from slavery and prepare them to live with him. Doesn't that make sense of the story and why we would care about the furnishings and the temple and the palace of the great king who's about to come and live in the middle of the camp where we could all wake up every morning and look out of our tent and see the cloud by day and see the glow of the fire in the tabernacle of the tent right there all the time. And if that was the story, wouldn't it make sense that the next thing we get is not the conquest of the land, but 27 chapters in Leviticus of instructions about how God's people can live in the presence of the great king and understand his holiness and sacrifice in such a way that they won't get killed because he's so majestic and wonderful. And then in Numbers, we get about 35 chapters of this story of the unfolding relationship as this king and his people learn to live with one another. Uh, If I'm at all right, my hunch is that um, what I have to say today is going to be maybe a little bit of a stretch or maybe mind-bending, but but hold hold on. Just hang on with me here Um, because what we're talking about is the theme of the Bible, and I think that we we have it, but we've missed a big piece Um, because not only is this the theme of Exodus, but I want us to see this as the theme of of the whole Bible. If you think back to Genesis, it began with the king dwelling in the garden with his people. And so the whole story of the Exodus is is the story of God working to restore that situation where he can live with his people again. And then we see in the New Testament what Todd has been teaching us about, about Jesus descending from heaven to earth to rule as a king and to defend his people. This, all the stuff that Todd has to say is that ringing in your ears now and connecting that the story is a story about a king descending to be with his people. In John chapter 1, John says that Jesus came and he dwelt among us. But in Greek, the word translated dwelt really is tabernacled. He tabernacled amongst us. And the idea is that Jesus is the tabernacle. And that we, don't, we no longer have the tabernacle, but Jesus himself has become that tabernacle. He is the king who is descended to reign and live on the earth with his people. That's why when he's born, the angels can sing, peace on earth and goodwill to men. It makes more sense that that's the proclamation because the king is coming. He's going to bring peace. He's the great ruler, the one who can set everything right through his power, and he's about to be born. The king is coming back. In John chapter 8, in the midst of a Jewish festival celebrating the exodus and the tabernacle and the light, Jesus cries out, I am the light of the world, and he who follows me will not wander in darkness, but be led by the light. 
And it's highly likely that he's referring to the light in the tabernacle. He's saying that light, the king who came and descended to live amongst his people, that's me. I am the king. I am the light. And I have come to guide all of you in our mission. And I, as your king, am here to bring peace and goodwill to the earth through my power. It makes sense that Jesus, in his preaching, is constantly talking about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God is here. Repent and believe, for the kingdom of God is here. And that doesn't make sense. We're not quite sure what to do with all this kingdom stuff unless we see the theme of the Bible of being God as the great king coming to dwell on earth and bringing his kingdom values of justice and peace and mercy to bear in the world. And then finally, he commands the disciples to pray in the Lord's Prayer, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The idea is that that justice and peace, that kingdom will of God's, our prayer as his disciples, is that that would more and more descend from heaven to earth and that kingdom would come to bear here. And then when the story ends, see if this, if this is the theme of the Bible, wouldn't you expect that at the end of the story we would, we would see the theme return again? And if you take a look at Revelation 21 at the end, um, it's one of the reflections in the front of the worship folder. You can take a look at it right behind the announcements page. <clears throat> John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, which I think means sort of not that the earth gets destroyed, but that the manner of things that happen here have ceased and stopped. That The messed up earth, that messed upness has passed away. And the sea was no more, which for the Israelites, the sea symbolized sort of chaos and unpredictability and destruction because invading armies always come from the sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, coming from heaven to earth, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Now the dwelling place of God is with man. This is the time where we're finally going to see this fulfilled in its fullest way, where God's kingdom has come down from heaven to earth and we will dwell forever with the great king. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Because the king has come. And that's exactly, that passage in Revelation exactly describes the intent of Exodus 40. Now the tabernacle has been set up. We have a, 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 a department, office of the heavenly kingdom here living in the midst of the camp. The king has a branch office right here and he's taken up residence in the camp amongst his people that he might rule and have peace for us and wipe every tear from our eyes. If this is, this doesn't discount the Easter story 
about Jesus coming to die for our sins and restore our relationship with God, this story puts that in its place. I think too often we miss it that if Christmas has become boring to you, it is perhaps because we view Christmas as, well, the thing that had to happen so that Easter could happen. That Jesus had to be born so that then he could die and then pay for our sins and we could have our relationship redeemed with God, which is all true, but the glory of Christmas is that he came to die for our sins because he came as king to rule on the earth. And that that can't happen unless his people are redeemed from their sins and set free by the power of the Holy Spirit to join him in his kingdom here on the earth. Uh, If you've ever been visited by a Jehovah's Witness, uh, they're right about this. The, The whole Jehovah's Witness theme of paradise on the earth and the kingdom of God uh, and, and there are some serious errors that Jehovah's Witnesses have, and that's not one of them. In fact, I'd go as far as to say that most untruths become so powerful because they are partly anchored on the truth. And that what is attractive to so many folks about the Jehovah's Witness message is this message, which uh, I think we don't believe in and live out of as much as we could. Uh, And they've captured it, that the theme of the Bible is God coming as king to the earth to dwell and set everything right. Now, if this is true, it's going to have some powerful implications. Uh, And I can go on about this for a long time, but I want to boil it down and look at it in two areas. That, That God's coming from heaven to earth gives new meaning to the earth itself, and then also that it gives meaning to humanity and our reason to be. Let's take a look at the, first, at the earth first. Uh, it's going to be important for us to remember that the Lord comes from heaven to earth, in part because the earth, the earth has an intrinsic value of its own, completely separate for what it can provide for us. And the Bible talks about the earth all the time. We've already read and sung and quoted passages this morning in our worship service where all of creation gives praise to the Lord. And we're human beings, and so we can kind of see humanness from the inside and understand what it means to give praise. Uh, But I'm not a plant. And so I don't understand what it means for a tree to give praise but it's abundantly clear that the Bible is convinced that they do. That the earth and the mountains and the trees and the deer and the beaches are screaming out praise for their creator and he made them because he loves them. That God made mountains for the goats and goats for the mountains and just as our work has significance, goats do work that is significant when they're bounding around on the mountains made for them, not for us, they are doing their work that the Lord prepared for them, and he loves to see them do it. Uh, and, And he comes to dwell on the earth because this is the place that he loves. And there's a powerful implication here for us and the way that we care 
for creation. Uh, because everything here belongs to our king. If this is our view, that, that Kailua Beach is the beach of King Jesus, who created it for his pleasure and glory because he enjoyed it and because it shouts out to all the world how great he is. Uh, and we'll talk about this more, but it is part of our calling as his kingdom people to protect his stuff and to defend it. And it is, uh, I think, unfortunate and a great embarrassment that often cases it's the non-Christians who have understood this far better than we have, that we have a calling to love and protect the place that our king made. The earth has value also because it's the playing field on which our great king has chosen to live out his glory and fight his battles. If you think about it, in the book of Exodus, the Lord could have communicated that he was king in all the earth in some esoteric way or some theoretical way or just taught it. And if he was a Protestant, that's probably what he would have done. Uh, but he wasn't, he decided that it needed to be lived out in time and space on the earth. And so he picked a fight with the guy who thought he was in charge. And he won. And for all the ancients, that was important, that the earth is the place where the kings do battle and we find out who's the boss. And that doesn't change in our day and age. That's why Jesus also didn't sort of pronounce himself Lord from heaven. He came from heaven to earth. And he is now from heaven directing as king his battles through his word and the Holy Spirit and through his people. That uh, our goal isn't to get to heaven. The biblically speaking, heaven is like a construction zone where Jesus is up there with hard hats preparing the new Jerusalem to come down to the earth where in paradise we will all reign with him on the earth with new bodies in his kingdom and he will set everything in place not in a spiritual way with us in heaven and harps but on the earth with new physical bodies in glorious place with redeemed everything, trees, goats, animals, everything set right on the earth. Uh, when I was in college, uh, like many college students, especially in Seattle, was filled with stress and angst about papers and having gotten broken up with. Uh, and I can remember one December as finals were approaching, I was walking along campus at the University of Washington uh, chatting with Ed Dunnington, my campus minister, about my papers and how am I going to figure this out and I just got broken up with and life is yucky. Blah, and we're walking along and it's one of these rare, beautiful, clear fall, wintry days in Seattle and we're heading up a hill and all of a sudden Ed stops and he says, can I stop you just, just for a second? Look at the mountain. Uh, and if you've ever been to Seattle and seen Mount Rainier, it's... It's two and a half hours away, but when, when it's on, as the locals say, it's right there. It's this massive mountain right there, just as when you're in Kailua and Kaneohe, the Pali, the Kolau, are right there. And in the midst of my speech, he just kind of stops and says, do you know that King Jesus created that mountain because he 
loves it. And he wanted us to see it and enjoy it. And for just a moment in the midst of my harried life, time stopped. And we gazed at the mountain as the sunlight beamed down from heaven. And I contemplated the glories of our king who made us this earth and who loves it so thoroughly and is working out his grace and glory here on the earth. The second thing I want us to see is that God's coming to dwell on the earth gives a new sense of meaning to what it means to be human. If you remember, in the middle of the book of Exodus, in chapter 19, we talked about how God says, look, I'm redeeming you and I'm calling you to myself and giving you the Ten Commandments so that you can be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That just as Moses represented God to Pharaoh and fought God's battles on his behalf as his authorized representative, so now all of God's people become his authorized representatives commissioned to carry out his mission in his place on his property here on the earth that we understand what it means to be human in a radically different way that to be human means to be citizens of our king with a commission from him to bring about to pray for to seek to fight for his kingdom values of justice peace and mercy here on the earth In Matthew, this is why, again, Jesus is constantly teaching about the kingdom of God. And he says that it is what is to be our number one desire and goal, more than food, is to seek first the kingdom of God. Because it's part of what it means to be human. That we participate in bringing his kingdom to bear in the world. This is why... um, We've said a number of times here that that your calling in your work as a, a teacher or a chef or a military officer or a mother has value. This is why. Because all those things that you do, you're supposed to be doing participating in the kingdom of God, working for your king to bring about his values in the, in the place that he's given you to serve. And if we think of our efforts, our labors, In that way, I believe it will uh, redefine, re-energize, in some cases put limits around what we do. Um, I know that many of you are homeschool moms, and and your calling to, to school and raise your children as a family fits under this umbrella that because we are citizens of the king, and we are members of his kingdom, we are bringing his kingdom to bear, and part of that calling means raising our children and preparing them for that mission as well. See, it doesn't undo that calling, but doesn't that give it a different light and new life? But I hope also it sets you free a little bit to understand its limits. Your job isn't to make the perfect children. They're the king's children, Your calling is just to represent him as Moses did in the world. It should affect all the things we do 
but it might also inspire us to do some things that we, that we don't tend to do. See, about 100 years ago, um, there was a big struggle in Christianity about whether or not the Bible was real. And there's a branch of Christianity, um, often called liberal Christianity, that says, well, the Bible's a great story, but really matters is what we do. And so they headed off in the direction of social justice. And my suspicion is that many of those of us who believe in the Bible, in the evangelical Bible-believing world, have over-responded to that and said, well, if the liberals do social justice, then let's hang around and just talk about the Bible, because we know that's wrong. And we have perhaps thrown the baby out with the bathwater, because it's the Bible that teaches us to participate in the kingdom, and it's righteousness, which means justice in the world that if you're a christian and you believe in king jesus and his words in scripture look we are the ones who believe that we have a king in heaven who's commissioned us to this work we're the ones who believe in sovereignty that we have nothing to be afraid of in engaging with the world do not fear him who can kill the body Fear him who can kill the body and the soul. And yet again, I think oftentimes it's actually non-Christians who do a better job than us of feeding the homeless and protecting the weak and fighting for justice. My friends, this, this should be our home base. Why is it that we don't stop more often and offer a sandwich to a hungry man or fight for kingdom values in so many other ways? I thought up a couple spicy examples at this point, uh, but I think instead of offering us that, I just want this morning for us to marinate in the majesty of what it means to have this great king come from heaven to earth to commission us and for us to think on our own for a little while to begin to let this permeate and ask what would it mean if my calling and life my humanness as a human being was defined by my participation in the kingdom of the great king uh, I should probably clarify at this point there's a lot of different directions that you could take this. This is a sermon all by itself. But my understanding is that the instruments of warfare that the great king has given us in our battle to take ground for the kingdom, our instruments of war are things like suffering, sacrifice, devotion, the gospel, mercy, and death. And that's what sets this kingdom apart from any other, is that it's not a power play, that, that we're not headed out there with, with guns to exert our influence or force, that um, as we do battle with other storylines, and there are other people with other storylines claiming authority for the earth, that we go out fighting with suffering and sacrifice, devotion, the gospel, mercy, and death. Because that's the way our king fought for us. Uh, we are living, my friends, in an age where the world around us is dying 
for a reason to live. That so many of the storylines in our culture have, have broken down, especially in the West. That uh, especially in Europe, we, they have completely given up on the idea that, that Europe is sort of the light to the world and we're going to civilize the world with European cars and religion. And it's probably healthy in some ways that that, that storyline has, has been given up. Um, but there hasn't been much to replace it. And if we can embrace and accept and understand and live out this storyline, we will be equipped with a great story to offer the world around us that is dying to know what does the earth mean? And what does it mean to be human? And what are we here for? We are here as citizens and agents of our wonderful king who has descended from heaven to earth multiple times in the past as king to rule with his people. And you know what? He's going to win. And if you come to Jesus, you can be a part of that. And we can go out and save the environment and transform justice and study economic systems and cook the best food and produce great art all on the behalf of our king. That all these places, education, everything, find their place, their role in the kingdom. If you search through the Bible, especially the Old Testament with your eyes open, you will be shocked how often the scriptures speak of things like these, of feeding sojourners and, and sharing what we have been given and not being possessive of the property of the king. Um, as the Lord has been uh, setting this fire in my gut and reminding me and helping me see how great he is and how great his kingdom is, um, I've been surprised to see that thought around us in so many places where I just didn't notice it before. Uh, all the great reformers, uh, if you're a reformed person, they all believed this. Um, it wasn't their emphasis, but it, it's always been there. And even in the great Christmas hymns, if you listen with open ears, O Holy Night, the slave is our brother, is a line in that hymn. And we're about to close with joy to the world. And with this theme of Jesus, of the Lord God as the great king descending to make peace reign on the earth, listen to the words of joy to the world again and see if you don't hear them in a new way. Joy to the world. The Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. Joy to the earth, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ, while fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. Listen to this. He comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. Uh, my friends, if, uh, if Christmas, if the glories of Christ on any level have become boring to you, I invite you to soak anew in the great majesty of our King and the hope 
the joy, the gospel of the coming kingdom because he will win. And joy will come to the world and we are called to be part of it. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word, for your Holy Spirit, which always encourages and grows. Lord, I pray that um, the meditations of our hearts and the words of my mouth would be acceptable in your sight. Lord, you are our strength and rock and redeemer. I pray that many in this room today would be called, equipped to mission, to do the work that you have set before us, Lord. Help us study it, seek it out, ask what it is. I pray that you would show us and that we would give you the glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.